0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. The phenomenon of religious life typically involves some kind of renunciation. An individual gives up money, sex, and power to embrace a life of prayer, asceticism, and community. What does this particular form of life mean? What special happiness does it make possible? These are just some of the questions that philosopher Zena Hitz sets out to answer in her new book, part of which appeared in our March issue earlier this year. She's joined in conversation with senior editor Matt Boudway. That's coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Matt. It's good to see you here today. Good to see you, Dominic. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your conversation with Zena Hitz?
1: Well, I think we started from where she leaves off in her article for us in the March issue. We talk a little bit about her own experience as someone who is a convert to Catholicism and also not only a professional philosopher, but someone who has personal experience with religious life, having joined a community called the Madonna House in Ontario and spent quite a bit of time there. She didn't end up staying, but she did learn some important lessons that she brings to bear on her philosophical examination of religious life. So it's an interesting book because she uses the tools of analytic philosophy, the rigor of conceptual analysis to talk about how we understand religious life as a form of life, even making it as intelligible as possible to everyone, to readers who are Catholics, but also to readers who are not. She uses biography, she uses autobiography to go into great depth about not just the philosophical side of religious life, but the spiritual side, the emotional side, and some of the paradoxes that arise when you get closer to the experience itself, the sort of the sentimentality that is sometimes part of broad descriptions of religious life melts away and what you're left with is something hard and sometimes even repellent because it upsets our natural desire for comfort, for autonomy, to be in control, and requires that we surrender so that we can be wholehearted. And that's really the key concept in her book is this wholeheartedness that religious life makes possible.
0: Well, the part that we ran in our March issue certainly got a lot of attention and generated a lot of commentary. So I'm excited that our listeners will now get to hear Zena herself. Thanks, Matt. Thank you.
1: Zena Hitz, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank
2: you, Matthew. It's great to be here.
1: I thought we might start by having you read a passage which kind of explains the central drama in your book. Sure.
2: My attraction to religious life grew in intensity, corresponding to my discontent with the life I was leading. I was restless, bored, and frustrated with the tedium of a moderately successful academic career. I had had enough of teaching for money, studying for status, loving in order to advance myself. I was tired of using myself and being used. I wanted to live a life that could not be bought or sold. I had studied the philosopher Aristotle for years without living out his central ethical insight, that happiness consists in human activities pursued for their own sake. I still wanted to think and learn and teach, but I wanted to do so out of love for human beings not to score points in an invisible game where victory always slipped just out of reach. For me, then, the draw to religious life was partly alienation from my own work. I experienced that alienation as a kind of superficial selfishness, as though my academic life mattered only for its most immediate and thrilling forms of sweetness, publications, citations, promotion, and praise. Though I was hardly conscious of it, These goals governed my life. They provided temporary satisfaction, but long-term nausea, like eating too much candy. I sought to remedy my selfishness by adding on new activities, various forms of volunteer service in the community, hospice work, literacy tutoring, and jail ministry. That broke my life into fragments, loving my neighbor here, earning money there, scrabbling for status here, being human there. I kept putting on and off my human skin, as if I couldn't make up my mind about it. I wanted a life that was dedicated, wholehearted, and governed by what I aspired to hold as my deepest values, love of God and love of neighbor. I finally discerned a call to the Madonna House community in Cumbermere, Ontario. I stayed for three years, six months as a guest, 18 months in formation, and six months in promises. In that time, I received the grace of wholeheartedness, as well as the grace of seeing how to live wholeheartedly, not only in a religious community, but in ordinary life.
1: Though you're obviously a philosopher and use the skills of a trained philosopher in the course of your inquiry, your method in writing the book is not philosophical in the academic sense. You, you approach the subject of, of religious life as much autobiographically as theologically or philosophically. You use lots of anecdotes. First and second hand, you refer to a lot of novels and films. So generally, the effect is as much one of a long essay as a systematic treatise. And I wonder why you chose to write the book that way.
2: I think that speaking for myself, and I think for many people, we understand things more clearly through examples. It's a bit of a trick that examples are often hated in philosophy. So Kant, for instance, the great German philosopher Kant called them the go-karts of philosophy. What he meant was that it's a shortcut that leaves out things that are crucial and could lead you into serious error. And that's obvious why that would be true. If you want to say something universal, why would you just talk about some particular thing? We all have biases that start from particulars. We all have experienced drawing a conclusion from one case when that's really not justified. What I've tried to do to counter that is to use lots of examples and different kinds of examples in the hopes that the reader will think along with me about what might be general or common about all these experiences. So I, it's part of my conviction that life of the mind is lived through the imagination and the heart as well as through more traditionally purely intellectual means. And especially, I think, we don't live in a time or a place where there's a lot of Christianity that can be relied on as part of the general common culture. So I think the basis for real clear understanding based on systematic thinking is not there. And what we need instead is to not just think about things, but also in the meantime, persuade people that things are worth thinking about. And at the same time, give them. Some imaginative examples for their thought to feed on so that they understand why, have some sense of why someone might care about this kind of thing.
1: And this kind of thing is, in this case, religious life, broadly construed. You spend a lot of time talking about traditional religious communities. You spend a good deal of time talking about your own experience in Madonna House, which is a not so traditional religious community, but one that still makes full use of the resources of the Western and Eastern monastic tradition. One way I thought a person could approach your book, if I was trying to describe it to a stranger, is as a commentary on two verses from the book of Revelation, which you quote, Know your works. I know that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and have no need of anything, and yet do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And you write, it is the epitome of lukewarmness to treat God as one choice among others, as an added benefit to one's already wonderful, flourishing life. So there's that distinction between, between lukewarmness and wholeheartedness, which is obviously central to, to your book. But there's also another distinction, and that's between self-deception and true self-awareness or humility. And I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about how those two are related, how those two contrasts are related. What wholeheartedness has to do with humility? What lukewarmness has to do with self-deception?
2: That's a fabulous question, and it'll take me a minute to think clearly about it. I think that it's easiest to see the connection from one end rather than the other. So self-deception and lukewarmness is a bit easier. So you are lukewarm. That is, you think of God as being this kind of cool addition to your life that's already great because you have an illusion about your own relationship to God. That is, you think that God is something that you are adding to your life rather than some got the fact that God is in fact responsible for whatever is good in your life. So if we take that seriously. And we don't tend to take it seriously until we meet with some kind of grave crisis, grief, or something that makes our lives suddenly seem to lose meaning or some kind of desperation. We don't really believe. We might say with words, but we don't really believe that we rely on God for everything. One example I can think of, and I, I mentioned in the thing I read at the beginning, I I spent some time doing jail ministry. And so I, in the Baltimore Women's Jail, and the women who I met there had literally, often, literally nothing. They got in with some clothes on their back. They were people who were from the bottom end of our society. So the, just the absolute bottom rung in the social order drug addicts, prostitutes, et, et cetera. Maybe violent people. I don't know whether the people I talked to were actually violent, but they they all were intensely interested in God and how God could help them. They knew that the only way out of their situation was the grace of God. And that's in direct contrast to the way that I am by my social habits. And most of the people I know are where you think, well, your life's pretty good. We're very wealthy American middle-class people very comfortable. Our lives have a lot of very basically good things. And you know, we eat good food. We sleep on comfortable beds. We have people who care about us. But it's just not a lot. We don't we're insulated from violence, usually. So I think that we yeah, it makes it very easy to think that we are in fact in charge of our own flourishing. Whereas in fact we are not. So that I think is the connection between lukewarmness and self deception.
1: And then the other one was wholeheartedness and humility or self-awareness understood as the opposite of self-deception, a true sense of oneself in the light of God's mercy and one's need for it. Right.
2: So I think it has to do with our the nature and structure of our desire for God, right? So if we are fully aware of our weakness, our dependence on God, then we, I suppose you could go either way. You could go is there is after all the option in the revelation passage of being cold so you could hate god because of your dependence and that there might be a i don't think you could have complete wholeheartedness but you could have something close to it and then you could also in full recognition of your dependence on god love him and put him first that would be the connection but i don't want to take words out of your mouth But i feel like the notion of wholeheartedness needs more clarification Putting God first doesn't mean having no motivation that conflicts with the love of God. It's not purity. It's something more like clarity. And I've struggled to articulate to myself what the difference is. So if I think about my life, for instance, before I joined Madonna House, which I describe in the excerpt as being this attempt to just patch things together together, that I could never feel quite satisfied with any, you know, I was doing what I'd be do one thing. I wasn't satisfied. I'd do another thing. I wasn't satisfied. I, just, I never, I was always patching together. And I say that unconsciously, which I think is true unconsciously, really what I cared about was something like status, even though it didn't feel like that. And I don't think it looked like that. Because After all, I was doing all this volunteer work and I was a teacher and stuff like that. So I, I wasn't obviously a status driven person, but I think, I definitely feel in my experience the difference between that phase of my life and the le- phase of my life since I've left Madonna House, which is I know, I know at the core of my being what matters most to me and I'm always trying to get to it. And that's not that's saying I'm not failing more or less all the time, but I'm at peace because I know that in some way my life has been set up in such a way that the end is in the right place. Even if I'm pulling away from it at various times, it's, there's this kind of magnetic pull that always draws me back to it. I think that's how I'd want to describe wholeheartedness from my own lens of my own experience. Kind
1: of clarity. Also, maybe a kind of integrity that is a life in which the different parts of your life are integrated by that central commitment. The phrase you used about patching a life together, patching things together without any coherence. That's what we want. We want coherence. But we want a coherence where we're lucid about the thing that organizes all the other parts of our life. Right. In a way, that leads to the next question I had, which is about the persistence of an active will to abandon oneself to God's will. You write at the end of the exit that we published, In Christianity, one's happiness is not within one's power on principle. It must be given by grace. Part of the point of renunciation, then, is to clear the obstacles to grace, to break our habits of choosing that blind us to what we might receive. The contrast is not quite between getting and receiving, acting and suffering. Christian discipline involves the use of the will to choose to receive and to choose to suffer habitually and freely and out of love. The practice of total renunciation is an action, like the act of marriage, in which one holds one's whole life in view. The point is not to give up money for a time to see what it is like, or to fast or to wear a habit for a particular period of penance. It is an attempt to shape one's whole life. I think that's a beautiful passage and a great place to end the essay that we published. But I I also think that it, it might raise a reasonable question in the mind of a critical reader which is in practice how does that really work out it isn't as though i can make one choice to surrender to the divine will and never have to choose again even if you have make an initial choice holding your whole life in view as you say and even if that choice is to to obey an abbot or a prior for the rest of one's life in a monastery for example still there's always going to be another choice to make there'll always be little choices to be made day after day and then the larger choice to keep one's original vow. So right. the question is, how does abandonment relate to the discernment and that one needs to live any kind of Christian life, but also to individual conscience, which can never be entirely set aside even after one makes vows of obedience?
2: Right. Another great question. One point to make, I think, is that abandonment is distinct from despair. So I think abandonment has, or surrender, has a negative flavor for people who aren't familiar with the spiritual literature because it sounds like giving up. And so it's, but it's something different. It's not giving up. It's the opposite of giving up. It's reaching out to find in whatever happens to you in every moment, God's will for you and to find good in it. And I think... I think the only reason why you could make a commitment to surrender that had any effect is through the virtue of faith. It's through the theological virtue. So you, you, God gives you a grace of a virtue, which is, of course, something that belongs to you. It's a form of excellence, which is somehow built into who you are, your habits, your way of life, etc. But yet it's not under your control. But I think with that capacity for faith, as well as hope, you're, even in the worst circumstances, you trust that God is at work. If it were truly evident, if you could really see how God was at work, say in someone dying of cancer at a young age, just a common example that many of us run into, then it wouldn't be faith. And also, it would be impossible and weird. We shouldn't try too hard to understand these things, but we do trust, relentlessly trust. So I think what happens in real life is that you get thrown off regularly. Things happen which are very difficult to surrender to, and you pray for the grace to trust that God is at work in it. And all habits or conditions of character gets a bit easier with practice, so you have to practice doing it. And once I think... I think God tends to be helpful in this respect. So I think if you one of the I think the main purposes of the novitiate in the in religious life, this is this period of sacrifice and special, especially ascetical practices at the beginning at the moment of entry into religious life. One of the points of that is that it's very difficult. It's supposed to be difficult. You suffer a lot. And you trust in God in the form of your superiors and the rule that you're living under. And then you receive some grace, which should be palpable in some way or other, whether or not you fully, it goes with understanding. And then that's a piece of practice. Once that's happened once, it's much easier to see how other forms of suffering might also contain grace in them. And then you keep working at it. So there's, it's, this, it's in a way a kind of, yeah, a lifelong project. But well, when it begins from a particular experience or a particular commitment to trust that God is at work in whatever you face in your daily life.
0: We'll have more of Matt's conversation with Zena Hitz in a moment.
1: I'm Ellen Konick, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. You tell a wonderful story. You quote the famous Dominican priest Herbert McCabe who insists that when we're making petitions, we must pray for what we really want. We have trouble focusing on prayer because we are not honest with ourselves. We pretend to care about things we do not, in fact, care about. Our distractions, on his view, are the incursions of our real desires. The prayers of people on sinking ships are not troubled by distractions, he says. They know what they want. And this jives well with something that a wise old Jesuit told me once during a retreat. And I like the idea that we come to God as his children and ask, for the things that we want the way children ask their their earthly fathers for what they want, but then but then later you say that prayer does not change god's mind but changes us so that we receive whatever happens as something good as a gift for us personally, which is the more conventional formulation about how prayer works and what it's for, and sh- certainly the safer one so right. a person might think that in view of that second theological truth, the only good petitionary prayer is thy will be done and then you prepare yourself to accept whatever happens as a sign of god's permissive will that it will be to your own spiritual benefit if you accept it in the right way but to uh, a semi-skeptical eye this can look like making a virtue of necessity right This, like you, you you pray for what you want like a child in perfect spiritual naivete but then you brace yourself for the reality that you're as likely not to get what you want as to get it and whatever happen <laughs> and whatever happens, that whatever happens is God's will. So your real job is not to tell him what you want, since presumably he knows what you want anyway, you didn't need to tell him, but also because he's going to give it to you or not, based on his own will and not because you asked for it in a certain way.
2: See, yeah. I, I think this is actually a great example of why theology is not everything in the life of faith, because I, I think that, I think I have yet to meet the human being who can hear, oh yeah, I should just pray that will be done and then do it. So what we want is to pray that will be done and mean it. That is to concretely believe in our, our heart of hearts or with our whole heart, as you might say, that in fact, what really happens really is what God wants for us. And that's something which doesn't happen in theology. It happens in experience. So I think you have to be childlike and pray for what you really want. And then this is, in a way, another kind of cliche that's common among people who pray a lot. The simple thing that you wanted as, the, as God's child that seemed to be refused to you is given later in a form that you didn't expect. Uh, this is a core spiritual experience. And if you don't pray in a childlike way for what you really want, then you're not going to have that experience. And in fact, you run the risk of pretending, pretending to pray in accordance with a kind of theological abstraction, whereas in fact, you're not really, I think people need to actually see with their eyes and ears and their basic consciousness and their basic emotional constitution that God really does care about them. You can't do that without thinking concretely about the things in your life that you really want and things you really don't want and in t- communicating with God about that. So I'm very opposed to the theological shortcuts, which is one of the reasons why I think there's not a ton of theology in the book. There's, some Im- there's a lot that's implicit. I hope, I hope it's a faithful book and theologically correct and not misleading in any way. But it's, I don't think theology helps us in living a really vivid, authentic spiritual life.
1: Yeah. prayers can be go karts too. One of the monastic disciplines, you write about most of the traditional vows, the virtues that, that the religious try to cultivate in their enclosure, in their, whether they're anchorites or hermits or monks or friars. These are all different ways of trying to cultivate the same theological virtues and to reform one's life so that it becomes more like the life of Christ and more reflective of God's grace. But one of the things you talk about that I think will seem most alien, not only to non-believers or to non-Catholics or to people unfamiliar with the tradition, but even to practicing Catholics who are curious about monastic life, is the rule against what are called particular friendships. We value friendship, and it's a we consider it a great good and even a spiritual good and this is something about which most secular people and or non-religious people and religious people would agree, that it can be a site of great meaning, of grace, also a school of virtue. Aristotle, of course, famously wrote at great length about the relationship between friendship and virtue. But you point out that, no, this is actually a pretty important part of most monastic traditions, the rule against particular friendships. I wonder if you could say a little bit about why that is and why it's so important if we wish to cultivate true charity.
2: Yeah, I can try. Here's how I would put it. Friendship is a great good, but it is also, it can be an obstacle to our becoming the people that we're meant to be. And I think you can see that in simple social situations. So you're so absorbed in talking to your bestie that you don't see the lonely kid across the cafeteria who is crying into his lunch so th- there's a way in which focusing one's attention on a single person or on a few people can limit your perception of your community and limit your capacity to really feel what you ought to feel also true that many particular friendships especially groups or cliques are built on exclusion so you are friends with people. I am sure. I know this is true of myself when I was younger. I hope it's less true now. The point of the friendship is to distinguish yourself from others and to somehow solidify a sense of superiority to them. It's, it's kind of the right bottom of it, even if you have a good time in the meantime. So I think these are very great dangers both to a community life and to charity. And just as the goal of abandonment in circumstance requires that you see each event, each moment, each thing that happens to you in faith as somehow the will of God. You have to see each of your neighbors, each human being, as in some way an image of God, as Christ. Right? This is the Benedictine rule. Right? Let, all, let all let every guest be received as Christ. You might have some pretty unpleasant guests. You might have guests that are awful. I mean, there's a wonderful movie about it. I'm just going to just toss this out there an Israeli movie called *Ushpazim* about a terrible set of guests and what happens when you have these terrible guests, what hospitality means. So I think the virtue of charity, if we understand that as truly receiving each human being as an image of God and seeing whatever is good in them, whatever is holy in them, then you have to at least in some sense renounce particular friendship. Now, personally, in Madonna House, and there isn't a strict ban on particular friendship, but you but there are various practices which are meant to purge you of that kind of particular friendship, the bad kind of particular friendship, and then you can have a connection with a person a person who you get along with who help who helps you in all kinds of ways who you can communicate with, who supports you, and so on, but you don't ever you drop your time with that person as soon as it conflicts with some other need. There's someone at the door, you answer the door, you don't stay in the conversation, something like that so. It's. I think the ban is a, motive, is a way to purify our relationships with others.
1: Not related, at least not directly, to the book itself. I know that you recently did the pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. And since you're still fresh from that experience, what can you tell us about what you learned there, what you observed, how it corresponded or failed to correspond to your expectation of what the Camino would be?
2: I can connect it actually to this question we were just talking about because one of the things that happens on the Camino de Santiago is that you're I walked it alone as many people do, and you're walking for 500 miles to the north of Spain, right to the to the relics of Saint James, and you run into all kinds of people along the way who are going to the same place. Somehow, as a matter of practice, even though it's, I think most of the people I met at rate are not religious or Catholic. There's a sense that you talk to whoever's on the way with you and you listen to them and you, you have a kind of community with everyone who's walking with you. And it's very unexclusive, somehow internal to the practice that makes that the case. And it's very beautiful. See so People by first names, you know their language, maybe where they're from. You don't usually know their profession. You don't know their social status, apart from what you can guess from looking at them. So it's a non-competitive form of companionship and, it's, and you let people go. So you, people are very vulnerable, they're very open. So they'll tell you why they're on the Camino, they're grieving someone or they're in a transition in their lives or whatever it is. And so you'll have a deep conversation about the deepest things in life for a couple of hours. And then someone's pace has to change or they have to get somewhere else. And so you never see them again. Or maybe you see them two weeks later without expecting to. So I think that that mode of community is very close to the kind of thing I experienced in religious life that I was trying to portray in the book. And it also, it's a beautiful example of a very old tradition where you undertake some suffering. Pilgrimage is a penitential practice. <laughs> and your feet really do hurt, and your knees, and you really are in a kind of poverty. However well you've equipped your backpack, it's all you've got. And your you practice is to sleep in hostels. and. So I think I was pleasantly surprised, even delighted by how similar the practice was to the basic principles of the book and how evident that was to people as human beings. That is, it's this need for this kind of asceticism and for that kind of these practices that make one receptive to grace, it's visible to people who have no Christian commitments. And they're on the Camino right now, if you ever want to meet them.
1: So, Zina, now that you are no longer at Madonna House, what are some of the lessons that you learned there that still apply to the life you live now as an academic, as a public intellectual, as a teacher?
2: It's a great question and a question that I wish I had addressed more in the book. I think that common for people under these circumstances to give you a list of practices, it's like, well... I pray for 10 minutes every morning, you know, oh, I did it. But the truth is, I've always been terrible at routines like that. But I made a decision to go back to the liberal arts college where I had taught originally. So I made a shift in style of academic life that I led. And that might look like a superficial shift to someone on the outside, but it didn't on the internally speaking, it was a huge shift because I would have thought in my previous incarnation that. Teaching in a smaller, but large college was unthinkable. It's not high prestige, and you do tons and tons of teaching, so you don't have any time to to write or to be out in the community of scholars or in the public eye, typically speaking. So I made a choice to organize my life around a particular kind of work, which was a type of loving service. That is teaching in a college whose practices I knew and who I, th- that I thought was a w- way that would help make the way, you know, um, and help people be better and help young people find their way in the world in the way that I once was helped to find my way. And that is what the thing that I did. So the practice is staying on track, not getting too pulled into so many things that teaching is no longer the center of my life not getting pulled away into more prestigious positions again. That's the work. But the fact is you can make a commitment like that. Just as someone who gets married and then has a few young kids, you don't need to. The struggle is to keep committing to taking care of your young kids and to find joy in it, even when it's hard. It's not somehow some magical practice that you can do. That helps me. The question helps me because I think that's the way in which I think that the initial commitment is actually crucial because you make a decision to actually order your life in a particular way and to commit yourself to doing so. And then you've got some structure in place that that keeps you in touch with the things that matter most to you and that are the way that that God has called you in particular to serve his people.
1: Dina Hitz, thank you very much again for
0: joining us on the Commonweal Podcast.
2: Thank you so much, Matthew. It's a pleasure talking to you.
0: Zina Hitz's new book is A Philosopher Looks at Religious Life, available now from Cambridge University Press. You can read an excerpt from it titled Renunciation and Christian Happiness on our website. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olinick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.